Chapter Thirteen of The Curious Quest by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen. Mrs. Heath almost dropped the tray which she was carrying. If I hadn't always believed at the back of my head that you was a gent, she exclaimed, real evening clothes and all, and you look as though you'd been born in them. Bliss turned round from the looking-glass in which he had been studying the arrangement of his tie. "'You'll reassure me, Mrs. Heath,' he said, smiling. "'To tell the truth, I was not altogether happy about the set of this waistcoat. No cutter who had any artistic instincts could have designed that curve.' Mrs. Heath set down the tray again. An expression of anxiety clouded her face. "'Are you feeling all right, sir?' she faltered. A bit of luck hasn't turned your brain, or nothing of that sort. Bliss laughed cheerfully. Not at all, he replied. As a matter of fact, Mrs. Heath, I'm not so sure about the luck. These aren't clothes I've got on. It's a livery. But a job as a waiter, eh? Mrs. Heath suggested, hopefully. I had a young fellow here once, used to earn his two pounds a week regular at Gatty's. Lawks! Bliss had produced a silk hat and a white muffler, and was drawing on a pair of white gloves. Where might you be going, sir, like that? she asked. To look for adventures, Mrs. Heath, Bliss replied. I'm going to wander a little way into a world I know nothing about. "'Well, I wish you luck in the new job, sir, whatever it may be,' Mrs. Heath declared, finally preparing to depart. "'If I'd known you were going out like that, I would have brought you something better than bread and butter for your tea.' "'If I have any luck, Mrs. Heath,' Bliss told her as he accompanied her to the head of the stairs, "'I'm expecting to get a supper out of the job.' Bliss found a motor omnibus which deposited him in the neighbourhood of Leicester Square, and at a few minutes before nine o'clock he sauntered into the promenade at the Empire. The place was fairly well filled, and he found himself studying the faces of the passers-by with an entirely new interest. He amused himself trying to classify them—sheep, goats, and neutrals. Of the former, there was only one young man he found himself able to accept without hesitation. He was tall, with a round face and a high colour, a badly brushed silk hat, a shirt from which one stud kept continually disappearing, a made-up black tie and a dress coat. He had red hands, and he wore no gloves. He carried himself badly and he was smoking Virginian cigarettes. Bliss tracked him down to the cigar stall, where he found him negotiating the purchase of a shilling cigar. Curiously enough, fate made things easy. The young man was, without doubt, clumsy, and in turning a little abruptly, he broke his cigar upon Bliss's elbow. "'My fault entirely,' Bliss declared. "'You must let me replace that.' "'Couldn't think of it,' the young man protested. "'I must insist,' 
Bliss continued, selecting him one from the box. Unless you have any special favourite, I think you will like these. Rather a dull ballet, isn't it? The young man was shy at first, and seemed on the point of shearing off after a few more amenities. Suddenly, however, he changed his mind. Like to sit down? he asked. I took a couple of stools, but my friend was not able to come. Bliss accepted the invitation promptly. The young man produced a card and became confidential. His name was Sturgis. His father was a hosiery manufacturer in the Midlands. He had come up to London on business and stayed to see the football match at the Crystal Palace. He knew nothing about London, but was eager to learn. He accepted Bliss's invitation to supper without hesitation, and talked throughout that meal with the noisy high spirits of young men of his class. He became dejected, however, when the lights were lowered. "'Rotten place, London,' he remarked. "'Nothing to do after half-past twelve. Have you ever been to Paris?' "'Once or twice,' Bliss told him. "'It's well enough, but London's only dull if you don't know your way about.' "'How the mischief is any one who only comes up once a month to find their way about?' the young man, whose name was Sturgis, grumbled. "'Well, what would you like to do?' Bliss asked. "'Would you like to go to a mixed bridge club and see some beautiful ladies play bridge? "'We can have a drink there, at any rate, even if you don't play cards.' "'Rather,' the young man declared enthusiastically. "'I've heard of those places.' "'Too easy.' Bliss sighed under his breath. The bridge club was a surprise even to Bliss. A highly respectable commissionaire received them at the door, a still more respectable major-domo, who, curiously enough, welcomed Bliss with all the respect of an old acquaintance, insisted upon his companion's full name being written in the visitor's book. The card-room was quietly but handsomely furnished. There were four tables of bridge-going. A very elegant-looking woman, dressed in severe black and wearing a big hat, held out her hand as Bliss approached. "'Come and sit down and talk to me, dear Mr. Johnson,' she said. "'You may introduce your friend.' Bliss, divining that this was Mrs. Fortescue, did as he was told. Mr. Sturgis was shy at first, but was very soon put at his ease. The lady was particularly gracious to him. "'Would you like a rubber of a bridge?' Bliss asked his new friend. "'I'm on for anything,' Sturgis replied. "'What about you?' he asked the lady, gallantly. She smiled at him. "'I don't think I'm very keen to-night,' she confessed. "'I've been racing, and Sandown always gives me a headache. "'Don't let me stop you, though, if you really do want to play.' "'Don't care what I do,' the young man declared. "'I'm all on for a gamble.' "'We don't play for high stakes here,' the lady said with an amiable smile. "'And unless you're a remarkably good player, Mr. Sturgis, "'I shouldn't advise you to play for anything more than the club points. "'The people here are pretty good, "'and they all know one another's methods perfectly.' "'Mr. Sturgis was a trifle dashed.' He seemed also somewhat perplexed. "'I've been telling our friend Mr. Johnson,' he explained to the lady, "'that I don't know anything about the runs up here. I come from Leicestershire. What I should really like,' 
if such a thing would be had, would be a little mild gamble. All the papers tell us there's plenty of it going on, but the difficulty for an outsider is to find it. The lady yawned slightly. I fancy that sort of thing, she said, exists chiefly in the imagination of the journalist. Good evening, Jimmy. Are you going to make up a rubber? Mr. Fancourt, who had just strolled in, paused and nodded to Bliss. I'm not keen, he replied, glancing at Sturgis. I'll make up if you want me. Bliss promptly introduced his friend from Leicestershire. Mr. Fancourt was only moderately affable. "'I can't interest Mr. Sturgis very much in bridge,' Bliss remarked. "'He wants a gamble.' Mr. Fancourt smiled. "'I expect your friend has been reading the trash in the dailies about baccarat clubs and that sort of thing. Personally, I don't believe there is such a thing in London. I think I go about as much as most men, and I never seem to hear of them.' There is one at Brighton, they say. If your friend would like a rubber at auction, or halfpenny points. Good idea, Mr. Sturgis interrupted eagerly. Anything to break the monotony. They took possession of a vacant table. Bliss cut with Mr. Fancourt, and they lost a small rubber. They played one more, and won. Mr. Sturgis, who played his cards moderately well, seemed uneasy. He continually glanced around the room. "'Don't any of these people play for higher stakes?' he asked. Mr. Fancourt shook his head. "'Penny's about our limit,' he replied. "'We're none of us welfare.' "'A, a little game of poker?' Sturgis suggested. "'Eh?' Mr. Fancourt shook his head firmly. "'Couldn't be done. Dead against the rules. Besides, I hate poker.' Mr. Sturgis relapsed into silence. Half an hour later he received three and sixpence, the balance of his winnings, and prepared to depart. Bliss, at a sign from Mr. Fancourt, remained. "'See you again some time, I hope,' Mr. Sturgis said. "'If you're ever down our way, I'll look you up,' Bliss promised. The door swung to, and Mr. Sturgis departed. Bliss strolled back to where Mrs. Fortescue and Fancourt were seated side by side. Mr. Fancourt motioned him to sit down on the settee. "'I'm not blaming you in the least, Ben,' he said. "'You won't mind me calling you Ben instead of Johnson, I'm sure, and I do hope you will not be discouraged. But your first young man from the country was just a little mistake.' Bliss was puzzled. He was a bounder, of course. Most detectives are, Mr. Fancourt interrupted. His real name is Richard Hales, and he is part of the Scotland Yard crusade against modern gaming hells. Bliss was staggered. I'm so sorry, he muttered. I don't see how I could possibly tell. I don't see how you could, Fancourt agreed soothingly. The only weak point about his get-up was that it was a trifle overdone. The ill-fitting shirt was all right, but the heavy boots and the made-up tie were exaggerations. The man we are looking for is struggling all the time to conform to type, and only fails through innate clumsiness. 
"'Hello!' he added under his breath. "'What vision of beauty is this?' The door had suddenly opened. A young lady clad in superb sables was coming quickly towards them, followed by the surprised major-domo. "'Maisie Linden, by Jove!' Fancourt ejaculated. "'I wonder, my dear lady,' he continued, "'what an agreeable surprise!' Mrs. Fortescue raised her tortoiseshell monocle, and regarded the newcomer with that slight air of surprise which, in the hands of an expert, is the last word in aristocratic impertinence. Maisie, however, took no notice of her. She gripped Mr. Fancourt by the arm. "'Jim,' she whispered, drawing him a little close to one side, "'I've got him—the nigger.' Fancourt asked quickly. She nodded. "'He's in my car outside. Give me my hundred pounds, and I'll bring him in.' Mr. Fancourt, from a crumpled heap of banknotes which he drew from his trousers' pocket, handed her five, which he counted carefully and placed in the bag she was carrying. "'I'll fetch him up at once,' she promised, turning away. Fancourt remained standing. He had the air of a man who, after long waiting, sees close at hand the accomplishment of his desires. His face was expressionless, but there was a curious alertness about his bearing. His forehead was a little wrinkled. He seemed to be thinking. "'She means the Prince of Hindor?' Mrs. Fortescue asked. Fancourt nodded. "'I tried for him hard,' he said softly. But that confounded Englishman the government told off to look after him had his knife in me. He's given him the slip somehow, I suppose. They say he won eighty thousand pounds in Monte Carlo, and lost most of it in one night at Baccarat in Paris, without turning a hair. Who is here tonight, Esther? She mentioned a few names. Bliss rose to his feet. Am I to stay? Fancourt nodded. "'Don't leave until I see you,' he ordered. "'I shall want everyone with their wits about them tonight.' The door swung open, and Miss Maisie Linden reappeared, followed this time by a short, very dark young man, with shiny black hair, olive complexion, and narrow black eyes. "'Hello, Jim,' Miss Maisie cried cheerfully. "'We want a drink, and the Prince wants to see a mixed bridge club.' "'My friend, Mr. James Fancourt, the Prince of Hindor.' "'Delighted to meet you, Prince,' Mr. Fancourt exclaimed, holding out his hand. "'I'm afraid it's rather a dull evening here. Only two tables going.' The Prince nodded affably. "'That does not matter,' he said. "'I like to see the ladies gamble. I like to play myself. I'm a great gambler. At Monte Carlo I broke two banks.' I find it very dull in London. Why is there not roulette or baccarat? Mr. Fancourt smiled. There is plenty of baccarat. Where? the young man demanded. Where? I will play. Here, Mr. Fancourt answered boldly. Then let us play at once, the prince suggested. Let us make what you call a night of it. I am very glad to have met you, Mr. Fancourt. I think that we shall be friends.' "'I am afraid,' Mr. Fancourt said, 
that our gambling will seem on a very small scale to you, but I will give orders to have the room prepared, and see if I can make up a little party. Mr. Fancourt whispered for a few moments to the major-domo, and afterwards disappeared into the card-room. When he came back he was followed by two women and three men, whom, with some ceremony, he presented to the prince. He then opened the door of a room nearly opposite to them, on which was written, Secretary's Office. "'If you will come this way,' he invited, bowing to the prince, "'I think we can get up a mild game at any rate.' Mrs. Fortescue took the prince with her. Mr. Fancourt held open the door until they had all passed through. Then he turned to Bliss. "'Wait here until you hear from me,' he ordered. Bliss strolled to the door of the bridge-room and looked through the glass top. There was still one table of bridge going, the four players at which appeared to him almost like performers in some dumb show. They played their cards mechanically and with little change of countenance. Not a word seemed to pass between them. Only once, as the door was opened to allow a waiter to enter, Bliss heard one of the women speak. "'Jimmy was a perfect beast not to let me play, Oomsie,' she sighed. The man opposite her, swarthy and heavy-lidded, raised his head for a moment. "'I don't mind being left out of the Oomsie,' he muttered. "'But I do mind being kept here just to give tone to the show.' Then the door closed. Bliss resumed his seat upon the settee. A moment or two later the door in front of him was opened suddenly— and Fancourt appeared. He came at once to Bliss. "'Johnson,' he said, "'you will see that easy chair just by the door?' Bliss nodded. "'Come there with me, quickly.' Bliss followed him down the corridor. Fancourt moved the chair a little farther back, and laid his finger upon a little protuberance underneath the carpet. "'You see that? Now I want you to occupy that chair, and to keep your heel upon that little lump.' What I am afraid of to-night is a semi-private police raid. Remember, you are sitting here waiting for your car, which you telephoned for. Order as many drinks as you like, and as many cigarettes, but keep on the alert. If anyone presents himself through that door who is a stranger, and Parkins there stops to inquire their name, anyone who seems to you in the least suspicious, just press with your heel. You'll get your cue from Parkins. You understand? I understand, Bliss assured him. Mr. Fancourt turned away. It will be an all-night job, he warned Bliss, but it will pay. Once more Mr. Fancourt disappeared through the door. Bliss ordered a large whisky and soda, a box of cigarettes, and the evening paper. Then he composed himself to wait. One young man entered the club who was received with much respect by the major-domo, and who sauntered into the bridge-room, and there remained. Then, about four o'clock, the swing-door was suddenly opened, and two men entered. They were correctly dressed in evening clothes, but their official air was unmistakable. The major-domo stepped quickly towards them, and Bliss's heel dug into the carpet. "'Whom do you wish to see, sir?' Parkins asked. "'Your manager,' 
one of the men answered. "'There is no manager,' the servant explained. "'Mrs. Fortescue, the secretary, is in the club. "'If you wish to speak to her, the stranger's room is this way, please.' The man whom he had addressed pushed him on one side. "'We'll find the secretary for ourselves, thank you,' he said. "'Stay where you are.' Parkins, however, still stood his ground. "'Strangers are not permitted in the club,' he protested. "'I cannot allow you to pass.' The taller of the two newcomers laid his hand upon the servant's shoulder. "'Look here,' he declared. "'We don't want any trouble. We are from Scotland Yard, and we are here in the execution of our duty. If you attempt to communicate with anyone in the club, you will be arrested.' They passed on then along the corridor, after a glance at Bliss, who had sat all this time with his heel upon the bell. Parkins turned towards him. "'Can't think what they've got into their heads, sir,' he remarked audibly. "'There's a police officer outside. I'm sure there's nothing wrong goes on here.' Bliss rose and followed the two officers. They looked into the card-room, where the four people were still playing bridge. They examined the other and smaller card-room, which was empty. Then they opened the door of the secretary's office, which was also empty. They stood for a moment, whispering together. "'There must be a room beyond this,' Bliss heard one of them say. "'You see, where the wall ends?' They made their way to the further end of the apartment. The room was in darkness, and they could see very little. "'Why don't you turn on the electric lights, Harrison?' the inspector demanded. "'I tried, sir.' his subordinate replied, fingering the switch. "'The electric lights in this room are out of order, sir,' Parkins announced stiffly. The inspector drew out a little electric torch from his pocket. Immediately on his left was a door shielded by a curtain. He drew back the latter and turned the handle of the door, which opened at once. They all stood upon the threshold, gazing in. The Prince, Mrs. Fortescue, Mr. Fancourt, and one other of the ladies were seated at a table apparently playing bridge. Two of the men were lounging against the mantelpiece talking to another lady. Miss Maisie was sitting on the arm of the Prince's chair. The inspector came a little further into the room, his eyes glued upon the bridge table. The dummy's hand was upon the table, the scoring blocks were filled with figures. The hand was apparently half-played. Mr. Fancourt stared at the intruders. "'May I ask what this means?' he demanded. The inspector was completing a tour of the room. There was nothing whatever to indicate that the game of bridge which was now proceeding had not been occupying the sole attention of the players. "'I am here in the execution of my duty, sir,' the man replied. I am Police Inspector Stanhard. We have had certain information that Baccarat is being played in this club. Mr. Fancourt shook his head sorrowfully. Oh, that's certain information, he sighed. I think that the same thing has been said about every bridge club in London where the stakes are over half a crown a hundred. Never mind, Mr. Inspector. If you will ask the waiter for a drink, I am sure he will be delighted to furnish whatever you may require. 
You will excuse me if I finish this hand? The inspector turned away with stiff dignity. Once more he made a somewhat protracted tour of the room. Then he moved towards the door. "'Sorry to have disturbed you, ladies and gentlemen,' he said curtly. "'Good night.' The two men left the room. Bliss remained behind. They heard the door of the outer room close. The prince threw down his cards pettishly. "'Let us make ready again,' he suggested. Mr. Fancourt shook his head. "'You must excuse us, prince,' he said. "'I don't think we dare risk it.' You shall have your revenge on another night. The prince sat there frowning heavily. And they call this a free country, he muttered as he drew his cheque-book from his pocket. Bliss, who had on the whole rather enjoyed his evening, presented himself at Mr. Fancourt's rooms the next morning with a somewhat dejected air. The latter stared at him in mild surprise. His new disciple had resumed the somewhat tattered habiliments in which he had made his first appearance there. "'I'm sorry,' Bliss announced bluntly, "'but I have made a discovery.' "'A discovery?' Mr. Fancourt murmured. Bliss nodded. "'I can't argue the matter out,' he declared, "'because, so far as last night was concerned, at any rate, my sympathies were altogether on the side of the goats. All the same,' I can't stick it. Conscience, eh? Bliss assented. Hopelessly out of date and all that, he admitted. But it's kept me awake all night. I've packed up the clothes and delivered them at Poulet's. The money you gave me I think I earned. You certainly did, Mr. Fancourt agreed. I'm beastly sorry. Mr. Fancourt sighed. I presume... Uh, he continued, that we can at least rely on your discretion. Absolutely, Bliss promised. Mr. Fancourt nodded amiably. He thrust his hand into his box of cigarettes and filled Bliss's pockets. Conscience, uh, he remarked, survives most things except hunger. Come back again when you need me more. End of chapter 13